This morning's sermon text can be found in Luke chapter 19, starting in, uh, starting in verse 1. Luke 19, 1 through 27. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was, an, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten, ten minutes and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you, put, did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him. And give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray now for our time in the word. 
Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you for all that you have done for us to bring us to yourself, and we thank you for your promise of eternal life. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, and your steadfast love that will never come to an end. Never will we ever come to a day when the Lord says, I've decided not to love you anymore, because you have loved us with an everlasting love, and therefore we have an everlasting hope. And I thank you, Father, that you have made many of us in this room objects of your grace. And I pray that today you would inspire us to be more and more vessels of your grace in the world. And for what you will do through this message and in the lives of your people, I give you my thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. For Mark, it was just another day. He was a busy man, lot to do. And he stopped by the grocery store on the way home to pick up a few things and to buy flowers for his wife. They were celebrating an anniversary or something. I'm not really sure what the occasion was, but he was there to get her flowers. The store was kind of busy, and so while he was standing in line, an old woman in front of him uh, struck up a conversation just to pass the time. But when the time came for them to put their, their items up on the conveyor belt, she noticed the flowers, and she said that that was the kind of thing her husband would have done for her, but he had died many years ago, and so he couldn't do that for her anymore. And Mark could see, and so could the woman at the register see, that this made the woman happy and sad sort of at the same time. And so he tried to cheer her up a little bit, and she paid for her groceries, and off she went. But while he was checking out and paying for his items, it it struck him that he should take the flowers he just bought for his wife and give them to this old woman. And so he hurried up and, and, and got himself checked out. He chased her down, and without freaking her out too much, he got her attention and approached her and said, Ma'am, your husband can't do this for you anymore, and so I want to give you these flowers on his behalf. And like a, a good wife would, she said, well, what's your wife going to think about this? And Mark assured him that Heidi, his wife, would be glad that he had done such a thing. And she kind of laughed and said, yeah, that's how my husband and I were too. And so she received the flowers. Mark could see that the way she was walking, there was no cars out in that direction. So he asked her where you know, how she was planning to get home, and she said that she didn't have a car, and so he offered to give her a ride home. And she agreed on one condition, that he would come in and let her give, her, give him a cup of coffee and show him some pictures of her late husband. And so Mark agreed to do that. He got her in the car, he got her home, and pretty soon they were sitting there in her living room enjoying a cup of coffee and looking at pictures of her late husband. And at some point in the conversation, the lady asked Mark why a busy guy like him would take time out of his day to do something so kind like this for a stranger. Now this was not a a bait and switch in Mark's mind at all. He had not shown kindness to this woman in order to be able to share the gospel. It was just something God prompted him to do. But now that she asked, he saw it as an opportunity to tell her the truth. And so that's what he did. He told her that years before God had softened his heart, that he had become a Christian that he had given his life to Jesus and now Jesus was shaping his character and he was learning how to think about the needs of others and not just of himself. He was learning how, even on a busy day, to think about what he could do to be a vessel of grace and not just to be an object of grace. And very gently, without being too pushy, he explained the gospel to her and encouraged her to put her faith in Jesus as well. He told her that what he had done for her was just a sign of what Jesus was wanting to do for her in her life. She didn't put her faith in Christ that day, but that conversation led to other conversations with her and Mark's wife, Heidi, 
But the time came where Mark and Heidi had to leave the area. The woman still had not come to faith in Christ. Ten years later, they get a package sort of out of the blue. This woman had sought them out somehow or other and sent them some gifts for their child along with a letter. And in the letter, she didn't express anything about coming to know Jesus, but she did give him thanks for what he had done and told her how much that one little experience with him had impacted her life and how much she still talked about it to that day. And so Mark and Heidi and, and their, their now children, they bowed together and they prayed once more for her to come to faith in Christ. And they never heard. They never heard the end of her life story. By now she surely has gone on uh, from the earth and I, I don't know where she's at with regard to the Lord. But here's what I do know. Mark and Heidi were both busy people. They had jobs. They were uh, starting to have a family. They had much going on. But they were objects of grace. Their lives had been radically changed by Jesus Christ and they offered themselves up to be vessels of grace in the world toward others even if it was inconvenient for them. And oh, how God has used them over the years in this story and in many others as well. For the last few weeks, Pastor Kevin and I have been offering a series of messages about the vision of the church that's in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, probably the most glorious vision of the church anywhere in the Bible. And we've been talking about how that vision works itself out, particularly here at Glory of Christ we began by talking about what it means to be rich in the word and I've been so encouraged to see how so many of you have responded to those messages and I want to encourage you to just keep on keeping on with the word of God. We have now passed what they call quitters day with New Year's resolutions in early January and I just want to encourage you beloved, don't quit. If you can't be as rich in the word on a given day as you want to be, that's fine, but just go to the word. If you can't read a lot, just read a little, but just keep on keeping on. Be rich in the word. Be constant in prayer. This is the way that we're going to become a fruitful church. And then we talked about elders and deacons and the need to raise up more leadership in the life of our church. And over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Kevin has led us to talk about community life and the vital place that life together plays in our spiritual growth and in our spiritual health. Well today, I wanna begin a series of four messages on evangelism and I wanna talk about the calling that is upon the church, the privilege that is upon the church, the joy that is upon the church, not only to be objects of the grace of God in Christ, but to be vessels of this grace in the world. And we surely, as a church, are not starting at zero. Abba, for example, from the very beginning, we have had people from our church heavily involved in that ministry, which is really nothing but a massive vessel of grace into our community. And we could give so many other examples. We're not starting at zero, that's for sure. But as always, we have growing to do, and I hope to see us grow in this vital joy, this vital passion in the weeks and months and years to come. We're going to talk about the words and the actions of Jesus in the coming days. We're going to talk about the words and the actions of Paul and other New Testament leaders. And we're going to hear stories about people like Mark and Heidi who simply offered themselves up to be used of God as vessels of grace in the world. And as we hear these stories, I pray that the Lord will shape our hearts and use every single one of us to be a vessel of grace in the life of somebody else in the coming weeks. Jesus was on a mission from God and nothing would stop him from fulfilling that mission. He had taught his disciples twice what the end of his earthly mission was gonna be about. He had warned them twice that he was gonna go to Jerusalem and he was gonna have to suffer. But they didn't understand and so he told them for a third time. If you look back up in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31, here's what Jesus said. 
He said to his disciples, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man, that is Jesus, by the prophets will be accomplished. For we will be de- he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Still, the disciples did not understand this mission, but Jesus did, and he was intensely focused on it. He was absolutely focused on that mission. Every single thing he thought and felt and said and did, every relationship he had, everything in his possession, everything was focused like a laser on accomplishing the mission that his father had given him to accomplish. He was a focused man, focused on the glory of his father and on the purposes of his father in the earth. But as he and his disciples began to head towards Jerusalem, they came near to that old and famous city of Jericho. And there, somewhere in the outskirts of Jerusalem, they came across a, a blind beggar. He had probably been there for years begging people for things. And here on this day, he actually begged Jesus as well. But he didn't ask him for money. He didn't ask him for clothing. He didn't ask him for food. He didn't ask him for a place to stay. He asked him to heal his blindness. And to make a short story even shorter, by the leading of his father, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Jesus healed this man by the side of the road. And he gave him the great privilege of getting up from that place and following Jesus. He had become an object of grace. The Lord, right by the side of the road, forever changed his life. And now Jesus said, come and follow me. Come and learn what it means to be now a vessel of grace and not just an object of grace. Well, this blew the minds of everybody who saw it happen. And you'll see there in chapter 18, they they literally and verbally began to give glory to God and praise God there by the side of the road. And now Jesus, along with this man and his disciples and probably others, headed right into the heart of the city, that famous city called Jericho. As they headed into that town, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a leading tax collector, which means that he was a supervisor of other tax collectors, and through his work, he had become a very rich man. You've probably heard that in those days, the, Ro- the Roman government, wherever they ruled, they would recruit natives of whatever cultures they were ruling over, and they would use them to collect taxes from the people. And then they would allow the tax collectors to collect more than was required, and that more became the income of the tax collector. They weren't required to collect more, but they could collect more, and some collected quite a bit more. In this way, tax collectors made a living, and in this way, Zacchaeus made a killing. And not only had he personally benefited from taking more taxes than were necessary for people, but he was a chief tax collector. He was a supervisor of others. So he surely got a cut of everything that they collected as well. He became rich off the backs of his own people. And they would have seen him, first of all, as a greedy thief, but probably more importantly, as a kind of traitor. A traitor not only to their nation, but even to the very covenant that God had made with their nation. Somehow or other, Jesus knew about Zacchaeus was. And I I take this from the fact that before Jesus even arrived into town, he's striving to see who who he was. He wanted to meet him. He wanted to interact with him. Somehow he knew that Jesus had something that he needed and he longed to get near to him. But as the crowd began to gather, Zacchaeus was a little bit short and he couldn't see anything. 
So in his zeal, rather than settling with that, he ran ahead and went up into what they would call a sycamore fig tree. It was a tree that sort of looked like a mulberry tree and bore a fruit that sort of looked like figs. So it was a sycamore fig tree. He got up into that fruit tree and didn't realize he was about to be a piece of fruit that Jesus was going to harvest. So here comes Jesus now walking down the road with a large crowd around him. Zacchaeus, eager to meet him, does not say a word to Jesus, but Jesus, for whatever reason, looks up in the tree and decides to say a word to him. Just the fact that Zacchaeus was in the tree probably got the Lord's attention, but I think it was more the prompting of the Holy Spirit that caused Jesus to say something to him. And what he said was pretty simple. You'll see it in verse 5. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Don't delay. Do it now. For I must stay at your house today. You must show me hospitality today, Zacchaeus. Now at that time, the Jewish culture was a hospitality culture. So it would not have been unusual for a well-known man to come into town and to actually ask someone to host them. In fact, that would have been a great privilege. It would not have been shocking at all to the people in that day for Jesus to invite himself over to Zacchaeus' house. What would have been shocking to them is that it was Zacchaeus in particular that he invited himself over to see. Because as I said, Zacchaeus had become rich, not just off the backs of people in an abstract way, but off the backs of the people in that very town. He had ripped them off. He had betrayed them in a personal way. He had been treasonous against their country right in their sight. And so they weren't super happy that Jesus Christ decided to uh, harvest this particular piece of fruit, if you will. And this is why they said in verse 7, he has gone to be a guest in the house of a man who is a sinner. You see, for them, to go into somebody's house was to basically endorse their way of life. To go into somebody's house was to share in their way of life. It was to promote their way of life. And for them, they're thinking, how could this man be a prophet if he's going into the home of a man like Zacchaeus who has done so much harm to our people? And you can understand their hearts. If you just stop and put yourself in their shoes, you can understand why they were grumbling when Jesus called Zacchaeus to come down from that tree. But while we can understand their hearts, the truth is that they didn't understand the heart of God for this despicable man. They didn't understand what the Lord was about to do for him. And in fact, they didn't understand what the Lord was about to do for all of them through his work in this man. They were, their eyes were open, but they were blind. They could see and they couldn't see all at the same time. We can understand their hearts, but they were blind to the heart of God. Jesus was there to do the will of his father, and the will of his father was to change some lives on the way to Jerusalem. Because Jesus was so attuned to the heart of his father, I doubt that he was surprised at all when Zacchaeus spontaneously said this in verse eight. He said, in the hearing of everybody, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Here's where I'm gonna start, Jesus. I'm a rich man. I'm going to take 50% of everything in my possession. I'm going to give it away. And I'm going to give it away to poor people, not to people who can benefit me in return. And then, Lord, what I'm going to do is this. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, and surely he had records of who he had defrauded of what, he's going to return to them fourfold, four times over. I'm going to return what I took from them with interest, if we could hear it that way. Now, you have to understand 
Zacchaeus did this in the hearing of everybody and he would have been accountable to them. This was quite a a moment in the life of this man. God had clearly moved upon his heart because he just confessed his sins spontaneously and publicly. How many of you would stand up in this room right now and confess your sins before the Lord right now, no matter who was listening? That's what Zacchaeus did. How many of you would promise to restore to people that you have stolen from four times over right in the hearing of the people you have stolen from? This is what Zacchaeus did because God was moving on his heart. God was changing his life. Money was now nothing to him because he saw the hope of life in Christ. I don't know that Zacchaeus understood all the details. I'm not sure at the moment he needed to understand all the details. All I know is that when he saw Jesus, God worked powerfully upon his heart and Jesus knew it. Jesus knew this. This is why the Lord was willing to say something so profound to Zacchaeus, but in the hearing of everybody. Look at verse 9. Today... Salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. He's a man of faith. He's a man now who's turned away from himself and turned away from the world and turned away from earthly things. He has decided, like our father Abraham, to live by faith in the Son of God. You remember earlier in the ministry, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son believes in the Father also. Whoever does not believe in the Son does not believe in the Father. Jesus is clearly declaring that that was the day Zacchaeus got saved, to put it in words that we would use. What a bold thing to say in public in front of everybody. Jesus was so amazingly attuned to the heart of his father. He was on a mission from God to get to Jerusalem and lay down his life for all who belong to him and believe in him. But along the way, he allowed the Father to use him as a vessel of grace in the world. Along the way, he uh, allowed the Father to interrupt him, if you will, to distract him, if you will, to have him take a left here and a right there so that he could accomplish his mission on the way to accomplishing his mission. And this Interaction with Zacchaeus not only changed his life forever, but it changed everybody's life in the city of Jericho. And what I mean by that is surely, I mean, we don't know for a fact, but most likely Zacchaeus followed through. And people got their money back. People got their possessions back. People were restored. Salvation came to a man, and corruption was done away with in a city. Oh, the power of the grace of God in Christ. And on this particular day, it was really owing to the fact that Jesus was allowing the Father to distract him on the way toward fulfilling his mission. Now, at the beginning of verse nine, you can see it says pretty clearly that Jesus was making this statement to Zacchaeus, but clearly the Lord had all the crowd in mind. Clearly he did. But in verse 10, I think he is particularly speaking to the whole crowd when he defined his mission on the earth like this, he said that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, came to seek and save the lost. I really believe that the target of verse 10 was those in the crowd who were grumbling against him. He understood why they were grumbling. I actually don't think he was offended that they were grumbling. I think he understood why they were upset by his association with Zacchaeus. But he wanted them to understand what he had come to do. He wanted them to understand that the grace of God in Christ was pouring out onto the earth and he wanted them to become, like him, a vessel of grace in the world. 
He wanted them to open up their eyes to see what they had just seen. Not just so that they could receive grace, but so that they could be a vessel of grace. He wanted them to emulate his way of life, as we will see in a few minutes from now. Ron, Bronski was his last name. He's probably Polish or something like that. He grew up in a very rough neighborhood in Chicago. He and his family lived a very rough life. And when Ron was a kid, he ended up joining a violent street gang that pretty much ruled the, with an iron fist the part of Chicago that he lived in. He got in a lot of trouble when he was a kid, in and out of jail. He had a rap sheet as long as his arm. But when he was 21 years old, his life of crime really came to a head and he committed a crime that was quite serious. A friend of his had been assaulted by a rival gang member and Ron vowed to get revenge and so he sought that gang member out, couldn't find him, but he did find the guy's brother. And there on the streets of Chicago one day, out in public, he gave that guy a real beating. In fact, he beat him within an inch of his life. His intention was to put him to death right there in the middle of the street. But apparently someone saw what was happening and called the police. And just as Ron was about to finish the deed, he heard the sirens blazing into the neighborhood, and so he took off on foot. He was able to escape from the police, but they issued a warrant for his arrest for attempted murder, and they began a pretty aggressive search for him in those neighborhoods. Ron went to his girlfriend's place. They gathered the few things that they had and they hightailed it out of town. They went west and they kept going west and kept going west. It turns out when you go west of Chicago, west of the Twin Cities, there's not a whole lot between here and the coast. So they kept going. They ended up stopping in Portland, Oregon. And they settled there for a while and God began to work in Ron's life. I don't know exactly what caused him to go look for a normal job, but for the first time in his life, Ron actually got a normal, legitimate job in a metal workshop in Portland, Oregon. And it just so happens by the grace of God that all of his immediate co-workers were believers. I don't know about the higher-ups in the company, I just know that the guys he was working with were believers. And Ron would tell you if he was here today that they didn't shove anything down his throat, but they also weren't ashamed to be Christians in his hearing, to be Christians in his sight. And so over lunch and Events after work and various things that happened, they shared the gospel with him once and then twice and then many times. And eventually, Ron's heart melted and he gave his life to Christ. He bowed before the Lord and confessed his faith in Jesus. And he's living for the Lord to this day. The Lord began to change his heart. He began to change his character. He began to change his habits. And his girlfriend could see that. She ended up coming to faith in Christ. And they got married and began to have a family together. And the Lord began to to bless their newfound life in Portland, Oregon. Ron became very active in his church. He became a contributing member of the community back in Chicago. They did not drop the charges, but they stopped looking for him. And the truth of the matter is that Ron could have lived the rest of his life in Portland, Oregon, and never have had to even think about again what had happened that day in the streets of Chicago. But the more that he grew in Christ, the more he had a crisis of conscience. And he just felt like he was not at peace and he would not be at peace until he went back to Chicago to face the music. And so he consulted with his wife at some length. They prayed, they talked to their mentors, and he decided to return to Chicago to go to the police station, confess his crime, and take whatever was coming to him. This is a big deal. The sentence, given his particular case, he was looking at 20 plus years. It was a big deal. But he felt like, to use his exact words, I have been reconciled to God, but I wasn't reconciled to society, and I just couldn't live with that. So he went back. 
He goes into the police station. I can't imagine the shock of the officers when they see this guy come in so long after the fact confessing to a sin, uh, to a crime. But the warrant was still there, so they had to arrest him and they put him in the holding tank until he could see the judge. On the day that Ron went before the judge to interact with him and tell him what, he, what had happened, there was a reporter from the Chicago Tribune there working the crime beat who heard the whole thing. And he says that Ron's words really stuck out to him because every other criminal he had ever seen either denied that he did the crime or tried to justify why he did the crime. But Ron wasn't like that. Here is exactly what he said. This is a transcript from the court hearing that day. He said, I am guilty to the judge. I did it. I'm responsible. If I need to go to prison, that's okay. But I've become a Christian and the right thing to do is to admit what I've done and to ask for forgiveness. What I did was wrong, plain and simple, and I'm sorry. I really am. Stunning. That reporter sitting in that room that day was a guy you may have heard of. His name was Lee Strobel. Lee wasn't a believer that day. And when he heard what Ron said, he was just shocked. He could not believe what he had heard. So he asked Ron out to coffee, and and Ron said yes. It turns out God sent Ron to Chicago for more than one reason. And I'll just let Lee tell you what happened from here. Here's a quote from Lee Strobel. I was blown away. Even as an atheist, I was so impressed by what Ron did that he didn't need to approach me to talk about his faith. I asked him about his faith. Over a cup of coffee... Ron recounted his entire story as I scribbled notes. Frankly, his tale was so amazing that I needed to corroborate it. I interviewed his co-workers, friends, and his pastor in Oregon, as well as the street-toughened detectives who knew him in Chicago. They were unanimous in saying that something had dramatically transformed him. Ron claimed that God was responsible. Though I was a skeptic, I was thoroughly intrigued. Ron expected to spend two decades behind bars away from his wife and his little girl. But the judge, deeply impressed by Ron's changed life, concluded that he wasn't a threat to society anymore and he gave him probation instead. The judge said, go home and be with your family. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine hearing that with the gavel smacking against the bench? Lee said, I had never seen anything like this. After court was adjourned, I rushed into the hallway to interview Ron, and I said, what's your reaction to what the judge just did? Ron faced me squarely and looked deep into my eyes. Lee, what that judge did was show me grace, just like Jesus did. And Lee, can I tell you something? If you let him, God will show you that grace too. Don't forget that. Lee did not forget that. In fact, Lee Strobel says to this day, that his relationship with Ron was one of the key things that actually ended up influencing him to put his faith in Jesus sometime later and influencing his wife to put her faith in Jesus sometime later. And now that Lee has put his faith in Jesus, he has led many others to Christ and he has trained countless thousands in the joy and what he calls the adventure of evangelism, including me. I was in a training session with him in 2001. I got to talk with him and pray with him and interact with him. He really changed the way I think about some things. He blessed my life. I've never forgotten the exact words Lee Strobel spoke over me that day. All of this because a man was willing to be a vessel of grace in the life of another man who allowed himself to to be a vessel of grace. And in fact, if you think about this story for a minute and just go all the way back, it all starts with a few 
guys in a metal workshop that God had strategically placed there to be ambassadors for his kingdom. Think about that. Guys who were nothing notable, probably as far as the world counts notability, but they offered themselves up to God and they just weren't afraid to be Christians in public. And because they loved on a guy who really needed to be loved, he became an object of grace and then he offered himself to be a vessel of grace And then Lee Strobel received that grace and he became a vessel of grace and now many others have become objects and then vessels of grace. It really starts with this very simple thing with people saying, Lord, here I am, use me. You've changed me, now use me. That's the joy of evangelism, beloved. Evangelism cannot be, it should not be some obligation on every person that we gotta go out there, share the gospel, make Christian sales, if you will. It cannot be that. That is not true grace. True grace flows into and out of the people of God. We are objects of grace and vessels of grace constantly, all the time. The question is, will we be willing to just offer ourselves up, even today, to be used of God in ways that might surprise us? While Jesus had the attention of the crowd gathered around Zacchaeus' house, he told them a parable because I think he was trying to teach them. He's trying to lead them into a way of life. I don't want to go into the details of the parable with you today because we frankly just don't have time to do that. But I do just want to get to the heart of what Jesus was saying. In just a few days after this interaction with Zacchaeus, Jesus did in fact go to the cross and he laid down his life to pay for the sins of all who belonged to him and would believe in him, put their faith in him. On the third day, he did in fact rise again from the dead and he taught his disciples for 40 days. And then in their sight, he ascended from the earth to the right hand of God the Father where where he rules and reigns over the nations of the earth to this day. Over heaven and earth, he is the ruler of all things to this very day. And one day, Jesus Christ will return again to receive his people into his presence, into his eternal joy, and he will judge every person and all nations that have rebelled against him and not put their faith in him. He will judge every person who has resisted his amazing eternal grace. And in some ways, Jesus is like the king in the parable in verses 11 through 27. There are other ways he's nothing like that king because the king in that parable is kind of a nasty guy. Jesus is not a nasty guy. He's a perfectly holy, good guy. But in some ways he's like that king. He has gone to a far country and he has invested in his people resources. And he wants us to take those resources and invest them back into the lives of others so that it may bear more and more fruit. He does not want us to bury those resources. And in this case, I really don't think he was talking about money. I think he was using money as a metaphor of spiritual things. He was using money as a way of uh, pointing to what's much more valuable than money, and that is the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And he's saying to his people, I've invested this in you. Now I want you to invest it in others. Some of you have been given a a 10 portion. Some of you are, are just rich, dripping with the gospel. Others of you feel like you've received five or or one. Whatever God has given to you, that's just his grace in your life. It doesn't really matter how much you've been given over and against what somebody else has been given. That's an irrelevant point. The point is God has made you an object of grace and he has invested in you. And all he's saying now is open up your life and be a vessel of grace in the world. Don't just think about yourself. Think about others. Don't just think about your agenda. Think about God's agenda in the world. 
It's okay that you have to go to work and care for your family and go to school and do everything else you have to do. Of course, you have a life on this earth that matters. But in between all the details, be, be awake. Be alive to what God is doing. Don't bury the grace in the ground. Don't do that. Don't do that. Come deep, deep, deep into the joy of being a vessel of grace. This is the Lord's aim in our lives, beloved. And what I have learned in my 30 plus years of walking with him is that he will do this in me even when I'm resistant to him. Even when I'm not exactly seeing what he's wanting to do in a given moment, he'll wake me up somehow or other and use me as a vessel of grace. Let me tell you a story about that. A few years ago, I was granted a sabbatical by this church to which I am still extremely grateful to the Lord and to you. I spent a few of the first weeks down in Winona, one of my favorite parts of the state of Minnesota, and I began work on my book that I wrote on the letter to the Hebrews. Whatever chapter I was working on in my book, I remember that I was in chapter seven, eight, nine, and 10 of Hebrews, which are some of the thickest theological chapters in the entire New Testament. Difficult to understand, difficult to work your way through, but I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible, and I was, I was just so excited to get to dive into the deep end of that and not have to come out. This particular day, I was working in Caribou in Winona because I like being in the coffee shop. I'm just wired where a little bit of background noise kind of helps me focus, but I didn't want to interact with people. So I was sitting in one of the comfy chairs there. I had my computer in my lap. I had my earphones in because I had been listening to some voice notes that I made about this part of Hebrews, but now I had finished listening to those voice notes. I had finished transcribing all my notes, and now I was just focused in writing. And for me, it takes a lot of energy to get myself focused and in that space. So I was in that space. I kept my earphones in as a signal to the world. I'm here and I'm not here. I'm here and I would like you to leave me alone. I have a smile on my face, but you stay there, I'll stay here. And then this guy walks in to the caribou. I didn't think much about it, but I saw him walk over. He gets his cup of coffee. And as soon as he turns, I could see it in his eyes. He's going to come. And he's going to sit right next to me in one of the comfy chairs. And he's a talker. I can tell. I don't know how I could tell. I could just feel it. I'm like, dang it, aren't we in Minnesota? We don't do it like that here. But he's going to do it like that for sure. And sure enough, he comes and sits right next to me. Not just close, but so close that our knees are almost touching. I don't have that close of a social envelope. I like a little distance, you know. So I'm like just trying, to, just trying to stay focused and I'm trying to not give him any signal that I'm interested in interacting. But sure enough, here he comes and just says hello in some way, shape or form. So I say hello back, but I'm still trying to send the signals. I'm busy, I'm working, I don't wanna be distracted, but I can feel him wanting to talk. You know what I'm saying? I can feel it, it's building up. And soon enough he just says, hey, what you working on there? So now what am I supposed to do, right? What am I supposed to do? My heart is hard. I'm trying to stay focused on the mission God has given to me to write this book, right? But I realize at this moment that he's actually not the one distracting me, that God is trying to distract me. I realize that I'm on sabbatical. I don't really have anywhere else to be. I got time, and God's trying to get my attention. I I really, it hits my heart pretty hard. And so... I decide to take my earphones off, stick them in my pocket. I don't think I closed my computer down, but I turned my body toward him and I just gave him my focus. I just gave him my attention. I settled into the fact that this conversation was going to happen, right? So I told him what I was doing. I told him I was there writing a book. I told him you had graciously given me a sabbatical. I told him I was working on Hebrews in a hard section of it. 
He told me what he did for a living. He turns out he was in a kind of an industry, the kind of people that helped my stepfather as he was moving toward death. And so I, I thanked him for the things that he did. I assured him his life made a difference in people's lives. And then he began to ask me more and more questions about Hebrews. And I learned very quickly he knew nothing about the Bible. He didn't even know what the Old Testament and the New Testament were. So I had to start from the beginning. This guy's on lunch break. I got to explain the whole Bible and Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 to him like this, you know? So I did. I just started explaining. And I explained to him how 7, 8, 9, and 10 hang together and how 7, 8, 9, and 10 really wrap up the whole Bible and how they're hard to read so a lot of people don't really take time to get into them. But oh, I wish they would because they're so rich. There's so much here. And I said, probably it wouldn't be the place to start if you wanted to read the Bible. He said, oh, no. He's like, I'm that kind of guy. I like things that push me. I like things that challenge me. I like historical things that make me have to put things together. And also, by the way, he said to me, he said, I've heard this idea before that one guy died for the sins of others, and that never made a lick of sense to me. But now that you've explained why he did what he did and what it was fulfilling, I, I get it. I, that, now that makes sense to me. And he wasn't ready at that moment to put his faith in Christ, but he vowed to me that he was going to not only read but study the letter to the Hebrews. I didn't ask him to make a vow, but he vowed to me, I'm going to do this. And I I told someone earlier this week that I had given him a Bible, but when I thought back through it, I didn't give him a Bible because he told me he had a friend who had given him a Bible. So he already had a Bible. And so I just prayed with him right there in the caribou, and I did pray that God would lead him to a saving faith. And he went back to work, and I tried to go back to work, but I really couldn't. So I went to the park in Winona, and I walked around the park. There's a little lake there, and I just gave thanks and praise to God. Eventually, I got back to that chapter in my book, and eventually I wrote it. I don't know what came of him. I can't even remember his name. I don't know the details of what happened in his life. All I know is this. I was on a mission from God that day, and I really was. Since I published that book, it's sold a few hundred copies. I have received 10 stories, exactly 10 stories, of people who read that book and came to faith in Jesus reading that book. God sent me on a mission to write and publish that book. I know that he did. But God had a distraction for me along the way that kind of had to do with the mission. And I'll tell you, I was shocked that that part of the Bible would be the fodder that I would use to share the gospel with an unbeliever, especially a guy who knew that little about the Bible. Shocked, but it was exactly what he needed to hear. I was was so focused on the mission of God that I was not open to being a vessel of grace. I'm wrestling against the Lord. But he's like, son, I love you enough that I'm going to make you a vessel of grace today. I am going to distract you. And now it's one of the most precious memories in my life. I love that story because it tells me about the grace of God in my life that won't let me stop short of being a vessel of grace. And that's the grace I want all of us to experience. There's just nothing like the joy of being a vessel of grace in the life of one, 10, 20, how many other people? There's nothing like it. So in the coming weeks, I'm gonna talk more practically about the details of how we might cooperate together to be vessels of grace. But for today, I just want to encourage you to ponder the stories you've heard. And I want to encourage you to ponder the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost and to hear his call to not just be an object of grace, but to be a vessel of grace. And I want to ask you to just pray a simple prayer. Lord, today, would you use me to be a vessel of grace in the life of somebody else today? And then you don't have to think about it too much. Just go about your life, but pay attention because maybe the Lord will answer that prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness to us in Christ. 
I thank you with all of my heart for how you have redeemed so many of us in this room, and I thank you for how you will make us vessels of grace and not only allow us to stay at the level of being objects of grace. Lord, it is a great privilege to know you. It is a great privilege to receive from you, and it is a great privilege to be used of you. So please, Lord, help us enter now into the depth of the joy that we, along with you, can seek and save the lost. For what you will do, Lord, for how you will use us, for how you will use this time in the word, I give you my thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.